There's no way around it. Caring for a loved one with dementia is not for the faint of heart. We don't know what we don't know, and many families focus so much on the person with dementia that they forget to keep their eyes on the family member managing care, which can be catastrophic. In this podcast, we'll help you become more proactive and remind you to focus on yourself. We will share challenges and wins and guidance from professionals at every step in the journey of caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's and other dementias. Welcome to the Eye on the Caregiver podcast. Today, we're rejoining the conversation with Kay Coughlin, business coach, advocate for family caregivers, and CEO of Facilitator on Fire. Our conversation last week was just so rich and full of information that we decided to continue the conversation this week. So thank you so much for joining us again, Kay. I've talked to so many people about our story, you know, about what we went through, really not to to tell people what we did, but really to help them understand that we, that I understand, you know, and, and I mean, I've talked to people on planes and things like that. And I can't tell you how many times I said, when we, when we moved our dad into a memory unit and I hear, oh, we could never do that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's a little guilt right there, you know? So much guilt that's behind all of this, Sean. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I'm at peace with what we did. Um, and, you know, and I think if my dad were cognizant, he would have said, please do this. You know, like if he just kind of came out of the blue for five minutes and we had a conversation, like, yeah, please put me in a memory care facility. And we had a fantastic, you know, experience at the memory care facility. But I can't tell you how many people have said that to me. Like, oh, I could never, never put my, my parent or something into a place. And I was like, oh, okay. Because now you're projecting, you know, like. I guess we now, you know, I guess I made the wrong decision. You're implying that we made, you know, some kind of immoral decision mm-hmm. for our loved ones, you know, and it's just, it's just interesting. So, well, okay, going just off let me tell that, you though, let me yeah. tell you that when we divide people up into categories, and in this case, we're talking the human givers and then everybody else, right? Um, it really does give people the, the right to be judgmental if we don't fit into their mold. And that's what's going on there. And I, I truly think most people don't do this meaning to be hurtful or, or meaning to be manipulative. But when we label people like you're the caregiver, right? That's a label. Boy, that just opens us up to all kinds of bad social behavior, like judging people for doing differently than we think we would do. You know, sometimes I talk to uh, businesses, and this is one of the things I talk about is do not let your own stereotypes about your family or what you think you would do in this situation, do not let that get in the way of how you treat somebody on your team who happens to have caregiver responsibilities. Don't let those kinds of stereotypes, which is what we're talking about, and those kinds of biases Don't let that become something that actually causes harm. And I think what you just described there is people causing harm, is people feeling like they have the right to judge us because they've always been told they have the right to judge us. It's pretty insidious and it's really everywhere. Yeah. And I don't even think they're doing it. Yeah. I I don't even think they know they're doing it. Yeah. I don't think that they're basically going, I am going to judge you based on what you did. I think they're just saying, oh, I could never do that. And implying 
not even maliciously that, you know, we made the wrong decision, but I, I'm a hundred percent with you. Like, and we talk about this all the time is that every situation is different. The yes. context is different. Everything yes. is, you know, and I tell people, you know, um, that, you know, our experience was our experience. Right. And I can name 10 things that were very different of our experience with our dad versus our experience with our grandmother who had Alzheimer's, right? Um, very, you know, I went through both of them very different, you know, and, and there's just so many factors. So, so when we talk about like, you know, and this is kind of going on the theme. So I'm just going to kind of keep going down this, this, this path. Um, and I, and this was very, very prevalent in our situation with our father and our mother, as our mother was the primary caregiver. Okay. That, um, you know, you shouldn't admit you need help with your emotional, mental health because you might cause the people around you to worry about you. And I think, I think we experienced that in spades with our parents. And as a parent, you know, you, you have that too, right? You're always like, oh, I don't, I don't want to worry. I mean, I, I've, there's been situations where my parents have had medical issues and we don't find out until days later. Well, we didn't want to worry you. Right. It's like, it's like, that's just the biggest myth out there. And it's, I think it's, I think it's also unfair. I think it's unfair to the people that are around you that care about you that you're not giving them a chance to, to participate and help you. That's right. That's right. But that instinct to protect, you know, mm -hmm. to protect your family unit or to make it look like everything's okay or to pretend like everything is okay is so much stronger than that instinct to let, to let other people get involved. Um, it's just, it's what we've picked up and what we've been taught our whole lives. So, you know, in terms of human giver syndrome, what's going on there is that as the giver, as we are the givers, the expectation is that we're going to do everything to make everybody else more comfortable, which includes we believe that hiding our own physical and mental and emotional needs from them is going to make people more comfortable. So that's what's going on in terms of human giver syndrome. In terms of the larger human perspective or human problem, we, one of the things that we do not understand is that we can't manage the feelings of other people. Um, so what I said earlier, that example, that when I was probably four years old, somebody said to me, oh, don't tell him no, you'll hurt his feelings. Okay, that is not how feelings work, right? If I say no, that's actually a neutral thing to say. I am telling you, this is something I don't like. The word no is a complete sentence. It's actually a neutral thing to say to somebody. If that little boy took that poorly or quote unquote, I hurt his feelings, that's not how it works, right? Feelings come from within each of us. So there's a huge myth here where we are literally believing that we can manage other people's feelings for them. So if we don't tell them that we're hurting, then what we're doing is we are setting them up to have a more positive experience. We think we're protecting them by doing that. 
And also the other thing is if we tell them that we have, you know, I'm feeling depressed or whatever, and then they get upset and then they start to worry, we think that we can manage their worry or that we ought to manage their worry. We don't understand that every human being is responsible for their own emotions. And that's the way it works. Now, you can be a jerk. I mean, everybody gets to act however they want. And if you want to be a jerk and try to cause people harm, there are lots of people who do that too. But if you go through life being a thoughtful person who is considerate and you think about your words and the way you say them, sometimes you have to say things that are hard, like no, and people aren't going to take that well. And that's not your responsibility. So in other words, what we're taught is a misunderstanding of emotional responsibility. And we think it's our job to protect people from our feelings because we don't understand how feelings work. Yeah, that's that's so true and kind of deep, you know, in a good way, <laughs> you know, in a good way. I know like even with my children growing up, I have one child who was very emotional, very verbal. And I don't know how many times I used to have to tell him, you know, you're not getting punished for what you did. You know, you hit your brother. I asked you not to hit your brother. You're getting punished for your reaction. You're just losing your mind and you're making mm-hmm. everyone miserable, you know. And then as they started getting older, you start realizing, you know, you can't. And how many times I've told my children, you can't help how someone else feels. It's not your job to understand how they feel. I just want you to know that they are entitled to feel the way they feel. Yeah. So it does make sense. And let's put this in a dementia perspective here for a second, if we can. Okay. Because I think that's really important. There's there's this confusing thing that's, that happens when you're in a family that has uh, someone with dementia. All right. The person who has dementia they they are the exception to this rule. Like somebody who has a TBI would be the exception to this rule, any kind of brain injuries. There are some conditions where people can't be responsible for their emotions. I get that, and for their actions. And dementia is one of those exceptions to this rule. Okay, so you're in a family, you've got brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, you've got all these people, you've got your own kids, and let's say, like in your case, your dad has Alzheimer's. The only person in that family who gets a pass on being responsible for their own actions and behaviors and emotions is your dad. What happens is as caregivers, we sort of let that spill over into all of our other relationships. People kind of take advantage of the fact that we already know there's someone in our life who can't be responsible Uh, And so we kind of let it slide. And lots of other people in the family can also stop taking responsibility for their own actions and for their own emotions. And that's because it's a confusing situation. And one of the things I always say to people is, remember, especially when you're in a dementia situation, the only person who gets a pass on being able to be in an adult relationship with adult responsibilities and emotions, the only person who gets a pass is that person with dementia. Everybody else can still be expected to get the mental health care that they need, to get the physical health care that they need. Uh, You know, unless you actually have some kind of impairment, everybody has that same individual responsibility to be an adult and to be an adult in that relationship. 
Yeah, that's, that's super important. Thank you. So another myth is that you should get enough meaning out of life for caring for and supporting the people around you. Their happiness and success ought to give you plenty of satisfaction. You shouldn't need anything more. Well, so one of the things that we get back to here, part of the myth, the belief system of human giver syndrome is that there is such a thing as a quote unquote good person. There's a good caregiver. There's a good sister, a good wife, right? And also on the flip side, then there would be a bad caregiver, a bad wife, a bad husband, that sort of thing. So we givers have been designated to be that good person in everybody else's life. This is a pretty heavy responsibility for society to put on us is to always be that good person. So uh, one way to really look at this is, you know, if we, I say that I look at life as black and white, but most of us do that. There's good and there's bad, right? That's that's it. Either you're a good person or you're a bad person. When life is a lot more like kind of on a scale of one to 10, you know, and most of us don't live life being a 10 good or a one bad, you know, we are somewhere in the middle. And for those of us who really identify with human giver syndrome, because it's been placed onto us, we really get the choice every day to remember that it's not up to us to be the good person in everybody's life. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about like resources, right? It's one of the things that we talk a lot about here. Um, so another myth is that you should be able to manage whatever limited resources you can scrape together. It's more important to use the money that you have to make sure the people you care for have everything they need first. And what concerns me about this myth is that the financial burden, you know, continues long after your loved one may have passed away. Right. And especially for, for, um, people who are elderly because they don't really have the ability to generate any more income. Right. So, so can you talk about that myth? Yeah. Well, you have to remember that one of the things that really holds up this myth and reinforces this myth is this human giver system that I talked about before. You know, if we as the givers, if we have decided collectively, which I think we have, uh, that we are not going to use resources, even if they were made available to us, uh, because those resources should be used for the people we care for, right? That's the whole myth of human giver syndrome. You know, the last time this was studied back in 2015, I mean, the, the dollar effect of this, and I'm sure you've heard this before, you know, we caregivers provide unpaid care to the effect of, back then they said $500 billion a year. And that's billion with a B. Unpaid care. And that did not even take into account any skilled nursing that or skilled care that people might have to give, you know, cleaning lines and giving injections and stuff like that. I think it's important to remember when it comes to this, you know, don't use resources as a caregiver. One of the reasons this sticks around is that the really the only people who want to fix this is us. Everybody else really stands to gain from an economic perspective when we say 
you know, I'm just not going to take that help for myself. I'll make sure that my mom gets the help. I'll make sure that my dad gets the help. I'll make sure that my child gets the help instead. That lets everybody else off the hook economically, and it saves everybody else a lot of time and trouble and a whole lot of money. Um, And I think it takes a caregiver to really see that we have to want to fix this. And what's what's really, really hard about this is that we're going to have to start making a stink about it since we're the only ones who want to start, who, who want to see it changed. You know, if you go, I, I have heard stories, gosh, and I myself experienced this, being in the hospital with my dad when he was in hospice, he was dying, and there was no bed for us to stay in. There was no bed for us to stay in in his hospital room. We could be there 24-7, but there wasn't anywhere to sleep. Now, the hospice folks were wonderful about helping us find blankets, and we found made a little window nook where we could curl up and go to sleep. But outside of the hospice unit, people really said, well, your first job should be to make sure that your dad is taken care of because it saves everybody else money. You know, if you don't have to make a bigger hospital room so that there's room for a bed, there's a real economic gain to that. So this human giver syndrome really does line the pockets of a lot of people. I don't think anybody does it on purpose. I don't think people do it on purpose. I do think that there are companies and institutions who take advantage of this and do it on purpose, but people don't do it on purpose. They don't understand that it's feeding this giant economic system. I don't even know what that, I don't even, I don't, I haven't even seen an estimate of what the care would be worth if we actually put a dollar value on it. Now it's a lot more than 500 billion per year though. I actually did a little digging on that, you know, just looking that up because, you know, the numbers that I see are usually focused on providing unpaid care to someone with dementia. You know, and those right. are in the bill. That's in the billions. Okay. What about people with cancer and children with special needs? And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. I mean, there are 53 million people in the U.S. And that was at the beginning of 2020, 53 million people who identify as a family caregiver. Yes. That's mm-hmm. a huge number of people suffering largely because of human giver syndrome. Yes. And you look at the financial side that you were just talking about. And another myth is that creating a future for the people you care about is more important than your own future and planning for what you might want or need. You know, like you should just put everything on hold and make sure that your person, your loved one has everything that they need. You can wait. Yeah, I think you've you've actually described the key myth of human giver syndrome, right? right there. It is your job as a giver to make sure that everybody else around you is more comfortable. Period. End of story. And you if you're a good person or a good caregiver, you should be willing to sacrifice everything in, including your future. Now, we know that economically that is not how it works. If you're in your prime earning years, anywhere between let's say 35 and 55 and you take a few years off, to take an unpaid family position where you're not getting any money and you're caring for someone, you almost can't make that up. You almost can't secure your own future. This is, I think, a generational problem because what happens then is for folks who take this time off during their prime earning years or any time really and stop earning money, stop having their own income to care for someone else, as those people age, 
they also don't have the money or the resources to care for themselves. And it becomes the problem of the next generation. It's a generational problem. I think we have a real opportunity to change that too. Well, Kay, this has been awesome. Um, super interesting. We are absolutely going to have you back. Um, and But how do people, I, I mean, you have a podcast. How do people find you? How, how do people find um, what you're doing, what you're, what you're producing content out there? Yeah, the best place to find me is going to be my website, which is facilitatoronfire.net. And that is .net, not .com. I haven't been able to buy it. I've been trying. For years, I've been trying. Um, so one of the, actually, one of the ways that people can get personalized help from me for free is through my Boundaries community. That's a free community. It works like a Facebook group, except I don't put it on Facebook because I don't find Facebook to be that emotionally safe, to be honest. So I pay to have this group hosted elsewhere. There's a link to the Boundaries community on every page of my website. And I also do have a podcast which is called From One Caregiver to Another. Uh, it's You can link to it from my website. It's available on every podcasting service as far as I know. Um, you know, I what I do with my passionately with my time is I am a caregiver advocate. That That is what I do. Uh, what I do for a living is I'm a business coach. I have a real dream that someday I'll be able to be a business coach for people like us, Sean and Michelle, people who have family caregiver responsibilities and also own small businesses. I really want to be able to bring those things together. So if anyone's looking for you know, business coaching uh, and they happen to be a, a caregiver, they can reach out to me as well. But yeah, just go to my website, facilitatoronfire.net. In terms of social media, the place where I'm the most active other than my boundaries community is going to be LinkedIn. Excellent. Thank you. We'll put all that in the show notes below um, and make sure that everybody has access to, to everything you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I have a feeling that there are many listeners out there who feel exactly as I did when I first heard the term human giver syndrome. So Kay, it's just been a, del it's been delightful having you and we can't thank you enough for your time and your expertise. As Sean said, we'd love to have you back in the future and talk a little bit more. Um, I think we have a lot to talk about. So thank you so much. And, um, uh, you know, we, we appreciate you and all that you're doing. Mm, thank you both for everything that you're doing at the Windward Foundation and through the podcast. This has been a real pleasure and a real honor. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you Kay.